0: You why everything you know is wrong. These lectures can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. And if you have enjoyed any of them, and you might be able to help keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining. The link should be in the description. And uh, it would be immensely appreciated if you might contribute uh, whatever you can. So I lectured a couple of weeks ago about Columbus and as I said then I want to start talking now about the pivotal events and new developments that brought an end to what we conventionally call the Middle Ages and Columbus's voyages are one of those momentous new developments that set Europe and Western Christendom on a whole new path towards what we now call the modern world. And today I'm going to talk about another one of these pivotal developments sparked by a very unusual, daring, unconventional, and in some ways enigmatic individual. So that is the beginning of the Protestant Reformation which was initiated as you probably know by Martin Luther. So I want to talk today about who was Martin Luther, what was he actually up to, why did he decide to challenge and face off against the papacy and the Vatican and all the powers running the Catholic Church of, what, of which he was a devout and active member and the consequences that unfolded from this unexpected challenge. So Luther is very iconic today as a kind of proto-modern, but that can be, again, very distorting. And there are a lot of myths and misconceptions that have been layered on top of Martin Luther and his quest to reform the church. Luther and the movement that he sparked led to the most dramatic upheaval and schism in the history of Christianity, Uh, even more profound in its implications and effects, I would say, than the schism between the Eastern and Western churches in the 11th century, which really began as just another spat between Western and Eastern church leaders, whereas the... uh, Luther's Reformation involved much more consequential questions of the very meaning of Christianity and the gospel and the very nature of the church and it led to much greater political and even military repercussions. Additionally we can say that Luther's Reformation was arguably the final nail in the coffin of what we conventionally call the middle ages so it came right on the heels of uh, columbus's encounter with america of the turkish takeover of constantinople uh, the invention of the printing press uh, the expulsion of jews from spain and many other uh, key developments that i've already mentioned before and that i'll talk about more uh, later So to talk about Luther, I am skipping ahead a little bit. We're talking about events that took place in the 1510s and 20s and 30s that uh, led to the breakaway of the Protestant churches from the Roman Catholic Church. So I'm skipping ahead partly because this is an important anniversary. Uh, We know that the Reformation began, as you've probably heard, with Luther posting his 95 theses on the church door of Wittenberg in 1517. And we don't actually know for sure that he really did post the theses on the church door, uh, That I'll, I'll get to that later. We do know that he wrote them and shared them with the public and so very publicly challenged the teachings and practices of the church at that time. And the situation sort of escalated from there. And the traditional date for when Luther supposedly posted the theses beginning this uh, indulgence controversy was October 31st, 1517, so 500 years ago precisely from this month. So I wanted to address Luther and what he was all about uh, now rather than miss this uh, kind of crucial half-millennium anniversary. Okay. So who was Luther, what did he do, and why was it so important? Well, to understand that, first we have to go back and remember some important facts about how the Western Christian Church worked in the late Middle Ages, which is the world in which Luther and all of his followers of the first generation grew up. How did late medieval Christianity, or what we would today in retrospect call late medieval Catholicism work. Well uh, there was of course a church headed uh, ultimately by the Bishop of Rome also called the Pope who was considered the final supreme authority on church matters Uh, but the church was largely locally run by local parish priests and deacons by local monasteries and convents who actually oversaw the cycle of worship that most lay people uh, observed and that administered the sacraments, right? So, from the very early years of the church, we know that there were certain crucial rituals, including most importantly baptism and the Eucharist, that were considered sacraments, sort of holy acts, that helped to deliver. To the worshiper, the grace that God had offered them. So, the free gift of salvation uh, was uh, offered and you might say administered to men and women through these uh, holy rituals called sacraments. The sacraments had been codified formally by the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, and this is the council that said there are seven sacraments, right? So you may have heard this phrase. It's still canonical doctrine in the Catholic Church that there are seven sacraments. Now let's see if I can name them off the top of my head. They sort of follow a life course. Baptism, confirmation, reconciliation, which is confession and penance. I'll talk about that later. The Eucharist, Holy orders, marriage, and last rites. Now, I so I I think I've gotten those right. I think that's seven. <laughs> I'm just pulling that out of my head there. But in general, these are particular rituals for particular points in life. Right when you're coming of age, you have confirmation. Uh, when you, uh, you when you marry, that's a sacrament. Last rites are for when you are anticipating death. Uh, and others like confession and penance which form the sacrament of reconciliation and the Eucharist are sacraments you would uh, participate in over and over repeatedly through your life and these uh, these particular sacraments formed what the historian Ewan Cameron has called the penitential cycle okay so you're only supposed to be baptized once right? Uh, you're only supposed to be uh, confirmed once but once you are a member of the church it's then expected that you will uh, participate in the Eucharist, you will receive the body of Christ into your own body through uh, the, the Lord's Supper or or, or Eucharist or, uh, or communion as it's called where you uh, eat a piece of bread that has been duly consecrated by a priest and which through the miracle of transubstantiation has become the body of Christ. Now in order to do this you have to be in a state of grace meaning you must be saved from your sins. Any sins that you've committed must have been confessed and forgiven before you can then be in a spiritual condition where you can receive the Eucharist. Right the question then is what do you do with people who have sinned and have not uh, confessed or shown contrition or received forgiveness for their sins well there's a process for this right and I talked about this in the lectures about the Crusades the Crusades also grow out of this penitential cycle and the penitential cycle uh, consisted in confessing your sins to a member of the clergy which is what was expected in the late medieval church, confessing your sins to a member of the clergy, receiving absolution, meaning the the clergy person grants you forgiveness on behalf of Christ and the church. Once you have received that absolution, you then are expected to do some penance, some action that shows your contrition for your sins. And there are all sorts of acts of penance one could perform. Uh, Going on pilgrimage was a common one. Uh, Fasting, uh, wearing uncomfortable clothes like hair shirts, uh, giving money or donations to charities or to the church. These are all things one could do as penance, right? And once one had done this penance, then the church regarded you as being in a state of grace and ready to receive communion. However, once you had done this, this didn't mean that you wouldn't then lapse back into sin again, right? It was taken for granted that even after you have received the body of Christ, at some point, you are going to sin again, right? Men and women are afflicted with original sin. It is part of their nature. They cannot help sinning, at least from time to time. So if you sin again, you have to begin the cycle again. You have to again confess receive absolution, do penance, receive communion again and people would often uh, engage in this cycle uh, very frequently sometimes several times within a week if they were extremely observant and if not every few weeks or so you might go through this cycle and you had to keep doing it because if you died and you were not in a state of grace then you were most likely going to hell Right? If you wanted to go to heaven and have eternal life, you had to be in a state of grace when you died. Right, So you always had to be vigilant to keep confessing, keep doing penance, and keep uh, receiving communion. Now, some people, of course, uh, understandably pointed out that this seemed awfully harsh and scary to say that if you were not in a state of grace, when you died, you were going right to hell. So the church developed another cosmic realm called Purgatory. Uh, and Purgatory was a, a commonly held belief by certainly by the 1200s when Dante wrote his Divine Comedy, where you have uh, uh, the, the narrator traveling through uh, Inferno, Purgatorio, and paradiso, right? Hell, purgatory, paradise. And it over time became a sort of codified doctrine of the church, that there was another realm called purgatory. And purgatory was where you went if you had some sins still attached to you, unforgiven. But you weren't so reprobate and wicked that you were going to hell. Uh, You would go to purgatory, and purgatory is where you purge your remaining sins. You suffer for some long period of time, and uh, you go through sort of hellish experiences that then spiritually cleanse you and allow you to then go to heaven. So purgatory became an enormously important fixture in late medieval piety, right? People were very afraid of going to purgatory. They were afraid of being in purgatory for a long time. And often they started to do things to somehow prepare for that eventuality of ending up in purgatory. They would do things like uh, leave money for monks or nuns to say prayers for them uh, and for, for monks or friars or priests to offer uh, masses of, uh, uh, in, in their honor after they have died in order to help them get out of purgatory to heaven. Right, so the church started to feed into this idea that you could do things like give the church money to help uh, get quickly past or through purgatory to paradise. Okay, people were very afraid of purgatory. They also began to do things to try to get their friends and loved ones out of purgatory. Right, so it, it began. To, it a common notion developed that you could. Uh, offer money for masses or do pilgrimages or make sacrifices of various sorts on behalf of deceased loved ones so that they could get out of purgatory. So this was uh, a very complicated, multi-layered system of religious practices uh, involving all kinds of, of, of sacraments, rituals, good deeds of various sorts, and uh, a, a real concern, almost obsession, with death, purgatory, and the afterlife. Okay, it was a, it was a, it was a very morbid uh, religion in many ways. You see a lot of references to death, to hell, to purgatory, uh, in in late medieval art. It was, it was really uh, a very dark kind of piety in many ways. But it was one in which people were very much spiritually engaged, right? This was not a time of religious indifference or slack piety. It was a time of of almost obsessive religious devotion. Okay? People were very involved in in the church and in concern about their souls. And a last note also the the practice of piety in this time was very humanized in a way. Uh, there, There was direct personal prayer directly to God or even to Christ was not emphasized rather there was a very complicated system of prayer and worship and penance that involved intercessors, human intercessors of various sorts and that might be living human beings you confess to a priest or a monk uh, or it could be saints, right? Who, by definition, were dead, uh, or any canonized saints always were were dead. So this was a time of of a very active and vibrant cult of the saints, right? Uh, Images of saints were seen in churches, statues of saints, relics of saints, many pilgrimage sites centered on saints uh, where their their relics, bones, hair, clothing, implements might be housed, places where saints had walked, places where saints were buried. uh, These were considered sacred. And again, that fund of grace that the church offered to people could be accessed through this veneration the saints okay so again it was very complex it was very uh, multifarious it was practiced in different ways and looked different sounded different in different places but there was this really deep pervasive uh, fixation on the question of death purgatory and the afterlife okay so what happened to this system of late medieval piety why did it come into crisis well there had been a number of challenges to it before Luther came along. So Luther, in, in many ways, was following in the footsteps of other medieval reformers. Okay, There had been several reforming movements of lay people in the church spanning right from the 1100s to the 1500s before Luther and that in some ways helped pave the way for Luther but all of which were declared heretical or or I should say most of which were declared heretical by the church and eventually suppressed and I'll, I'll maybe make a little note at the end about the exception so uh, there was the Waldensians in France and Italy starting in the 1100s uh, which were severely persecuted many of them took refuge in the Alps and have persisted there down to this day. There are still Waldensian churches in the Alps in Italy. Uh, There were the Lollards in England, which were a lay and clergy reform movement that began in England in 1381 and was suppressed and went underground, but still in some small pockets persisted right until the Reformation came to England. There were the Hussites, in Bohemia, a a serious uh, reform movement led by the dissident uh, cleric Jan Hus who eventually was uh, captured by Habsburg forces and burned at the stake. Uh, but But nonetheless the Hussites had seized control of the church in Bohemia basically what's now the Czech Republic, right? The Czech-speaking country in the 1400s. And although they were forcibly suppressed and Hus was burned at the stake, nonetheless, some of their reforms were accepted into the Catholic Church in Bohemia and and persisted for centuries after. There was also the Savonarola movement in Florence in the 1490s where a sort of apocalyptic radical Uh, preacher from the Dominican order in Florence basically seized control of the city after the collapse of the uh, Medici government. He seized control of the city and preached sermons against uh, wealth and extravagance and basically created a sort of extreme fundamentalist republican government in Florence that uh, held the bonfires of the vanities. These big bonfires where uh, Florentine people brought together their, their furniture and art and clothing and, and fineries of all sorts and burned them in the piazza. Uh, Savonarola also was overthrown after a few years and burned at the stake. There also was another significant movement that has been called various names like the Devotio Moderna or Modern Devotion. Which sprang up gradually in the 13 and 1400s, and which followed certain founding texts like a book uh, called *Imitatio Christi* or *Imitation of Christ*. And this was a sort of lay spiritual movement that emphasized personal piety, uh, living like Christ, and that de-emphasized the sacraments and the clergy uh, and various groups organized around the ideals of this modern devotion. They never got official church sanction, but they were not condemned and suppressed either. So there were the brethren of the common life, uh, laymen who, mostly in northern Europe, like the Netherlands and Germany, who would join together and uh, live in, in communal houses, sort of like monks, but they, were never, they never officially made themselves monks. They never took vows. They, they uh, rejected the whole idea of sort of uh, official, ritualized, clerical life. Uh, also, women organized themselves into houses of Beguines, again, particularly in the Netherlands, and uh, did voluntary charity work but they, were, they never sought formal recognition as an order, and it may be partly because of that that they also were never condemned as heretical in the way that the Waldensians, Lollards, and Hussites were. So they sort of managed to uh, thread the needle there and avoid uh, suppression. These various movements, Waldensians, Lollards, Hussites, the Savonarola movement to some degree, and the uh, modern devotion, all had certain common touchstones and certain common ideals. They tended to celebrate poverty, right? They criticized and rejected the wealth and opulence of much of the clergy and of the Vatican, and they celebrated uh, poverty as a pious and Christ-like form of life. They rejected special, sacred people, places, and objects. So. the the late medieval church had a very complicated structure and hierarchy of holy things and holy places, right? Human beings could be holy because they were ordained. They were members of the clergy. Saints were holy people. There were holy objects, whether, you know, ritual implements uh, or the communion, uh, bread and wine, or relics of saints that had a special uh, holiness And connection to God and to Christ and there were holy places you know holy cities like Rome and Jerusalem and all sorts of smaller holy places uh, either uh, places associated with saints or simply parish churches, monasteries that were in some way uh, consecrated. So these reform movements tended to reject this sort of idea of special sanctity and special holiness and rather saw ordinary everyday life and ordinary everyday people as all equally holy, right? And piety as consisting in uh, living uh, a a sort of moral and Christ-like life from day to day, rather than devotion and veneration to these holy things. They tended to question transubstantiation, okay? Uh, the, the, uh, The Lollards and the Hussites, Uh, and the waldensians actually all advocated that ordinary lay people should be able to perform the sacraments and that there was no sort of special miracle in the sacrament of of the eucharist Uh, and indeed transubstantiation the idea that the consecrated bread and wine actually become the body and blood of christ had long been a controversial doctrine and it was much debated through most of the middle ages but by about the 1300s or so it had become the accepted doctrine of the church but these reform movements still uh, rejected that doctrine and they tended to translate the scripture into vernacular languages so that ordinary untrained lay people could uh, receive as they understood it the word of God in a language they could understand and this was uh, prohibited in the late medieval church but many of these reformers did it most importantly uh, John Wycliffe who was the originating thinker of the Lollard movement in England he translated the Bible for the first time into English and it was circulated underground in English uh, for years before the Reformation Okay, so we can see there were many challenges to this medieval uh, church structure and its mode of piety and its symbols and its practices, right? Luther was not the first. So how and why did Luther succeed in creating a massive upheaval and in effect a schism where these earlier reforming movements had all failed or in the case of brethren of the common life had never actually tried well it was indulgences that set off the spark okay what are indulgences well i have talked about indulgences a little bit before in the context of the crusades right and in in many ways it's the ideas and the new developments set in motion by the Crusades that eventually lead to the Protestant Reformation. How is that? Well, the Crusades were declared as an armed pilgrimage. right? It was uh, a pilgrimage and hence an act of penance to go on crusade according to the medieval church. And not only that, but this particular form of penance Going on crusade was declared to be an indulgence, meaning an act that one could perform in, in place of some other act of penance, right? So if you had committed some sin, of any sort of sin, a mortal sin, a minor venal sin, uh, you didn't have to perform the normal penances associated with that sin if instead you went on crusade. And Naturally, some people pointed out, well, I'm not able to go on crusade. Uh, You know, I'm old uh, or I'm uh, ill or disabled. So instead, you could somehow contribute to a crusade and that could also be considered an indulgence. Uh, So you might give supplies or give money uh, to support a crusading mission and that could count as an indulgence too. So the notion of indulgence was slowly uh, widened And until finally in the early 1500s, so after crusading has been going on for hundreds of years and it's sort of petering out, it's really futile to keep trying to launch these failed expeditions into the Middle East. So instead, the church starts to declare other acts of charity or other contributions to Christian causes as indulgences. And one of them is the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So there there had been a basilica in the Vatican from early Christian times, I think from the 5th century, if I remember right. Uh, And it was really old and falling apart and really too small and inadequate to the new population of pilgrims coming to Rome. So the Pope wanted to build a new basilica that would be grand in the Renaissance style of the time and that would be adequate to the stream of pilgrims coming uh, to the Vatican in the 1500s. So he declared, the Pope declared that any uh, contribution to the rebuilding of St. Peter's would count as an indulgence. And he particularly commissioned the Dominican Order which was also known as the Order of Preachers and it was the most learned, educated theologically trained uh, mendicant order in the church and he basically sent out the leaders of the Dominican Order around Europe to preach uh, the the rebuilding of St. Peter's and to sell indulgences and I'm putting this in scare quotes because this is this is the way it's commonly referred to although that's not technically exactly what they were doing but what what he what the Dominicans preached was that giving to the fund to rebuild St. Peter's would count as an indulgence and if you made a contribution they would actually give you a signed certificate saying you have this indulgence and You do not have to perform other penances for any sins that you have confessed. Okay. Uh, The main Dominican leader who campaigned for these indulgences in Germany was named Tetzel. And we actually, we have a few of Tetzel's sermons that he preached. We don't, but others, we may not know exactly what he said. But there are several witnesses, although this doesn't appear in his surviving sermons, there are several witnesses who say that when Tetzel preached, he one of his uh, favorite lines was, Sobald der Fenig im Kasten klinkt, die Seele aus dem Fegfeuer springt. Which basically means, as soon as the penny rings, the soul from purgatory springs." This is more or less how it's been traditionally translated. Or when the penny in the coffer rings, the soul out of purgatory springs. So making a clear implication that basically you give the money and you buy your soul or someone else's soul a kind of -of get-out-of-jail-free card out of purgatory. Okay. So, obviously, Tetzel and these Dominicans, if we believe these witnesses, were pushing church theology to its utmost extreme. Basically, uh, really uh, crossing the line, or at least getting a hair's breath close to the line of saying, you can buy your way into heaven. Now, this tour of Dominican preachers was going on particularly intensely in 1517. Tetzel at some point went through Wittenberg in that year. And in the autumn of 1517, some lay people who had bought these indulgences or received indulgence certificates in return for making contributions took them to a very learned uh, young canon, at the Cathedral School of Wittenberg, which had recently been founded, uh, who was named Martin Luther. And they asked uh, Brother Martin, is this true? That if we uh, made these uh, donations to the St. Peter's Fund, then we get to pass right out of purgatory and go to heaven? Well, Luther, when he received this question was absolutely livid. He was furious and disgusted at the text of the certificate, he was furious and disgusted at the reported words of the sermons that these Dominicans were preaching and he was horrified that some of his own flock, uh, who he saw as being under his spiritual care actually had been led to think that making a donation could have their could buy them forgiveness of their sins and get them into heaven. So, he went absolutely livid and it happens that he was a very good writer. He was a very clear, uh, incisive thinker and a very good writer, and so he wrote his 95 theses, which are simply 95 sort of short points, so kind of mostly kind of tweet length points uh, arguing against The very idea of indulgences, and he called this text the Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. And we know that sometime after he penned it, it was published and circulated around Wittenberg. Now, according to later accounts, he also nailed it on the door of the cathedral at Wittenberg. Uh, it's not certain whether that's necessarily true. It it may be. Mainly, uh, we th- we think he may have because that was that was a common practice. It was simply normal for medieval scholars, especially those trained in the scholastic tradition, which was so dominant in the late medieval church, to post arguments and ideas on a church door as a way of initiating discussion and inviting other clergy to debate and dispute these contentious points so that was not an unusual thing to do and again it's a you know it's a lot like twitter you know that was that was kind of the 16th century equivalent of twitter you posted your short argumentative statements on the church door These theses were overwhelmingly aimed at debunking the practice of indulgences Uh, and Luther made some not very shocking uh, arguments. Uh, He argued that only inner repentance mattered, that uh, good actions, such as for instance giving donations to the church, had no spiritual value if they didn't spring from true repentance and uh, s- sincere uh, pious feelings otherwise they were merely an empty gesture and he uses passages in the scriptures that where Christ says uh, you know a, a good tree bears good fruits a bad tree bears bad fruits and you cannot Luther argues take bad fruits and, or, or good fruits I should say good actions and graft them onto a bad tree and somehow save the tree right it's the inner impulse the inner motivation that matters the action is simply the outer uh, incident he further he went further than this, this that might have been uh, that might have caused a bit of a stir that might have attracted some attention of local and regional clergy but Luther went further than this And he attacked not only indulgences themselves, but really the entire sacrament of reconciliation, right? And the whole idea of penance. He argued that the Pope and the Church do not have the power to remit sins, right? So these certificates that the Dominicans were handing out were totally invalid and false in Luther's view, regardless of what the action was that the person had performed to receive the certificate so it wasn't just about indulgences he went further to say the only Christ and God through Christ can forgive sins and grant salvation right the church is a human institution that has no such power right and if that's true then the entire process of confession and absolution and penance was pointless, was a kind of empty charade. And Luther didn't say it in exactly those words, but he did specifically say the Pope does not have the power to remit sins. Well, this naturally triggered a reaction, primarily from the Dominican order. He was was directly challenging uh, what the Dominicans were doing, and he was challenging the doctrinal underpinnings for their sale of indulgences which had who the authority of which came from the pope and the church councils okay so the dominicans see this threat and they react aggressively they report luther's 95 theses to rome right and they there are very important powerful uh, leaders of the Dominican order at the Vatican with tremendous influence over the Pope. And they quickly have Luther charged with heresy. Okay, Now this was far from the first time that a sort of dissident cleric had been accused of heresy. But they didn't know who they were dealing with, right? Uh, and as it turned out, this intense disagreement over indulgences would escalate and escalate until it led to the biggest and deepest schism ever in the Western Christian Church. Okay, so before I get into exactly how this conflict escalated and led to a massive reformation, let's back up and say and talk about Martin Luther. Who was Martin Luther, and why did he do what he did? Why did he uniquely react in this way to the indulgence-selling campaigns? Okay, well, Luther was born in 1483 in a small northern German town called Eisleben. There was nothing in particular about Luther's background that either marked him out as potentially important, an important person or that presaged the kind of uh, conflict and upheaval that he would trigger. Rather, he came from a fairly normal, lower middle class German town background. His father was a copper miner. He, he had a very strict upbringing often with very harsh discipline, particularly from his father and also sometimes from his mother, according to his accounts. And uh, he apparently took from this upbringing a feeling of fear and inadequacy, uh, anxiety that he would not measure up to expectations. His parents insisted that he go to university and study law and become a lawyer, which was a sort of natural... Uh, profession to pursue when a middle-class person wanted to move up the social ladder. So he went to the University of Erfurt and he uh, began studying law. He was a fairly good student. He also was a musician. He had uh, some fans and some accomplishments as a an amateur musician. But one day in 1505 when he was in the process of studying law he was 22 years old he was on his way back from Erfurt to visit his family at Wittenberg or actually I have that reversed he, he had visited his family at Wittenberg and he was on his way back to Erfurt and he was caught in a severe thunderstorm and he was terrified that he was going to die and as many people in late medieval Europe would do, he called upon a saint for help. And he called out to Saint Anne, and he said, Saint Anne, please save me, and I will become a monk. And he survived the storm. Most late medieval people would have then simply gone back home and gone about their, their lives. But Luther didn't. Luther followed through. On his oath, and a few days later, he went down the street in Erfurt to an Augustinian priory. So basically, a small teaching monastery of Augustinian monks, who were a uh, very strict uh, monastic order that lived a very uh, austere and even uh, ascetic lifestyle. And he knocked on the door and he said, "I want to join." So he abandoned his law studies, much to the fury of his family. He abandoned his law studies and joined the Augustinian order. Now, it seems from what we can tell from Luther's writings and other evidence from people around him, it seems as if Luther, before he joined the order, was already a person wracked by fear and guilt, right? which was not terribly out of the norm, right? It was normal to be constantly concerned about the fate of your soul, about purgatory. Luther was extreme about this, which is probably why he actually followed through on his oath and became uh became a canon. But he continued to be racked by guilt and fear. Okay? He engaged in theological studies including uh, biblical studies uh but he Felt constantly plagued by his sinfulness, his inadequacy. He was uh, terrified by his sinful thoughts and impulses. He went through cycles of constant confession. uh, And he had sort of spiritual advisors who told him to read the great mystics, to read people like uh, Bernard of Clairvaux uh, and seek solace in a sort of uh, mystical a connection with God but this did not help uh, and he kept uh, cycling through again and again uh, sometimes he would confess receive absolution he would go back to his bedroom and then an hour later he'd go back and wake up his confessor again and want to confess all over again uh, so he just received no relief the order in 1508 relocated him to Wittenberg Wittenberg was a uh, larger, there was a larger priory, Augustinian priory there in Wittenberg and it was sort of folded into a new cathedral school or kind of university that had just been founded there in the city a few years earlier and they needed scholars and teachers and Luther was very smart and promising so he there at Wittenberg was put to work teaching courses on the Bible and theology and giving spiritual advice to students including lay people including laymen who were not members of the order and this his main uh, mentor and, and advisor Staupitz saw this as a good way to kind of distract Luther from his obsession with his own soul and, and, and sin and salvation and it seems as if possibly it helped at least in the sense that it, it helped channel Luther's anxieties into something like a productive direction Luther uh, reformed the curriculum at this school, he basically cut out the high and late medieval scholastics like Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus, and instead refocused on the Bible and certain early church fathers, particularly Augustine, right? So we can already see he's, he's within the medieval church tradition, but he's refocusing on scripture and on, and on Augustine rather than on the complicated and Aristotle-influenced philosophy of the Middle Ages. Instead of the mystics, he turned his own spiritual reflections instead on to the New Testament and most particularly Paul. okay He saw in Paul a message about free grace, right? A gift of salvation freely given. And reportedly sometime around uh, 1515 he had a, a kind of epiphany where he came to understand more directly what he believed Paul was saying in his epistles, particularly the letter to the Romans, where uh, Paul argues that a believer is saved by his or her faith and by free grace, not by good actions. And this apparently was a crucial turning point in Luther's thinking, that he felt that he, he no longer had to worry about his observance of the sacraments, his confession, his penances, but that he could rest at ease knowing that his soul was saved by an unearned, unmerited grace. Right? And someone who was so wracked uh, by guilt and feelings of inadequacy in the way that Luther was could find relief in this idea that grace was given freely without being earned or merited. Okay, so this was more or less the thrust of Luther's thinking when these uh, students and other lay people from Wittenberg came to him with questions about the indulgences and we can see where Luther's own experience then defined how he attacked the idea of indulgences and the entire sacrament of reconciliation. That it was, in his view, a futile, useless exercise to try to perform good actions in such a way as to become good or earn salvation. That was simply impossible in Luther's view. People like Luther himself and others around him, he believed were totally fallen, totally sinful, but if they put their trust, okay, faith meaning trust or confidence in Christ, then they would be saved, no matter how bad they were. They would be saved as a free, unearned gift. Okay, so once the 95 theses are printed and start to circulate, Luther is summoned to a series of debates and disputations. And this was a normal process. When a person was accused of heresy, they weren't simply thrown in a dungeon or or, or burned at the stake. Rather, they were challenged to defend their views and, uh, and required to defend their views before then possibly being condemned and required to repent. So I won't get into this all the details of these debates and disputations that happened through 1518 and 19 and 20 but in most of them either Luther himself or students of his spoke up for his point of view as against Dominican opponents. Uh, One was in Augsburg in 1518 that was the first one in response to the charge of heresy And Luther again asserts the distinction between a good tree and a bad tree, that good actions cannot change the fundamental person, right? There must be inward salvation and regeneration before any actions can then be considered good. And uh, Luther, he, he rejected the whole idea of good works and argued that these supposed good works were merely masks, okay, Uh, masks for the true inner nature of the person, right? And righteousness did not consist in good works, but in sincere uh, belief, piety, and repentance. The following year in 1519, he went to uh, another disputation in Leipzig. And this time, uh, he was not supposed to argue himself, but rather, His students, particularly his kind of star student, Philip Melanchthon, would argue his view against a a Dominican disputant, and he traveled to this debate in Leipzig with all of his students who were armed with spears, uh, escorting him, because by this time there was so much sort of furor and controversy rising up around this supposedly heretical preacher in Wittenberg that they felt they needed to be armed to possibly defend Luther and his colleagues. This Leipzig debate began and uh, w- with the students representing Luther's point of view but Luther became naturally so agitated that he had to leap up and sort of shove his disciples aside and take part in the, in the debate himself and in this debate he rejected papal supremacy right so the Dominican order and their allies naturally pointed to the fact that the Pope had made clear final pronouncements on the doctrine of reconciliation and, and on indulgences and uh, Luther then rejected papal supremacy he said uh, the, the, the Pope is not the head of the church the only head that the church has or needs is Christ right so the church does not have any human leader. Now, Luther then could fall back on the idea of conciliar supremacy, the idea that pronouncements on doctrine must finally be made by a church council, a gathering of all the bishops, which in his view was supreme over, uh, over the pope. Now, His opponents pointed out that certain doctrines that Luther was putting forward were traditionally considered heretical, had been declared heretical, they were doctrines that had also been argued by Jan Hus, right? so they associated Luther's ideas with Hus, and indeed Luther had read some of the writings of Jan Hus and believed that they were very uh, persuasive and and, uh, should be taken seriously. Now Luther uh, defended the views of Jan Hus, and his opponents pointed out that Hus's teachings had all been condemned by a church council, the the Council of Constance. And when they pointed this out, Luther then called for a recess. He rushed over to the library. He looked up the you know decrees of the Council of Constance, and he found that this was true. He came back to the debate, and he said. The council is wrong too. And he argued any teaching based in scripture is authoritative. It doesn't matter what a pope or a council says. So at this point, he's basically uh, torn away the whole idea that there is any sort of institutional body that can pronounce on true doctrine, but that in his argument... True doctrine must always be based on scripture. Naturally, of course, his opponents would point out, and as they've continued to point out, who decides exactly what scripture means. You know, Scripture is extremely complicated and multi-layered, sometimes contradictory. Who has the authority to interpret and apply scripture? But that being said, Luther uh, sort of threw down the gauntlet saying his views which were in line with Huss's views were based in Scripture and hence were inarguable. And reportedly someone at the council cried out uh, the pestilence and someone else supposedly said, you know, behold the Saxon Hus. And after this disputation was closed, uh, reports went to Rome and Luther was formally excommunicated, right? So he was cast out of the communion of the church. Now, Luther uh, naturally was unfazed, right? He, he had already rejected the authority of the Pope to pronounce on points of doctrine, uh, and he didn't see the sacraments like communion as the avenue to salvation anymore. So rather, he continued to write and to preach, and he was given, crucially, he was given shelter by Frederick, the Elector of Saxony, So you might remember uh, Germany at this time was in the Holy Roman Empire, this sort of complicated confederation of small states and principalities that elected the Holy Roman Emperor. And one of the electors, meaning one of the regional rulers who took part in electing the emperor, was the Prince of Saxony. Right? So Frederick, the ruler of Saxony, was, was an elector, so he's called the Elector of Saxony. And Frederick of Saxony uh, liked what Luther was saying or at least liked the implications of what Luther was saying. There were many German leaders who, re, who resented the power of the papacy, right? There had been a long struggle between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope in the 11th century. And, and sometimes later, uh, and there was a lot of resentment in, in Germany against a, a, a mostly Italian and French-dominated church hierarchy. So Frederick of Saxony was one of many German leaders who saw that he could take advantage of the trouble that Luther was causing. So Frederick of Saxony knew that Luther had been excommunicated but he basically offered him asylum in Wittenberg uh, or or basically anywhere in Saxony. So Luther continues to write and he goes public, right? He takes his arguments to the printing press. Right, and this is the most crucial reason. Probably there are other, there are philosophical reasons, there are political reasons, but the most crucial reason that Luther's reform movement exploded, in a way that the Waldensians and the Lollards did not, is because of the printing press. Right, and Germany was the homeland of printing. If you wanted things quickly sent out to a printer and reproduced thousands of times and circulated. Uh, Saxony was the perfect place to be so in the year 1520 Luther wrote his three great tracts his sort of short books arguing in very clear readable German his rejection of papal authority and of the entire system of church piety that everyone in the late middle ages had known okay and these tracts, you can you can read them in translation, and you know I've assigned them to students. Uh, they're they're shockingly easy to read and grasp, uh, even 500 years later. And they were aimed at a lay audience, at basically just the literate public, right? The middle class and upper class literate public of Germany at that time. They were not abstruse philosophical. Uh, you know, treatises for a university audience like say you know, Thomas Aquinas or Duns Scotus would have composed. So these three great tracts the first one is Letter to the Christian Nobility so he, he sent an open message to people like Frederick of Saxony right, uh, rulers and civic officials in Germany who were not clergy And in this pamphlet, Luther rejected not only papal supremacy, but the idea of clerical supremacy, the idea that ordained clergy, priests, monks, nuns, bishops, were somehow spiritually elevated over the rest of society, right? And remember, in the Middle Ages, the common belief was that the clergy is the first estate, they are supreme, then the nobility is the second estate then the commoners are the third estate. And he simply uh, took this pyramidal scheme of the world and shook it all around and and tore it to pieces and argued that all Christian believers are equally holy, right? The priesthood of all believers. And he argued that uh, the church needed to be reformed thoroughly, that its practices and doctrines all needed to be reformed on the basis of scripture and that the nobility, right, the temporal leaders and rulers of Germany had the authority to call a council and undertake a reform, right? One of uh, the, the problems that Luther kept uh, butting up against was that a thorough reform program had to be carried out practically speaking, by a council, but the only person supposedly with the authority to call a council was a pope. But Luther attacks this idea, and he points out, for instance, that there were early church councils in the the Roman era presided over by the Emperor Constantine. Right. So in his view, these temporal, civic rulers had the power to call the council and reform the church and he invoked the fact that money and wealth was being drained out of Germany to Rome uh, as a way of kind of spurring on these this uh, Christian nobility of Germany to take action for reform. Now notice here one thing uh, to notice right at this stage is that Luther did not see it as his goal to create a schism, right? His, his goal was not to separate out the German church or, or anybody else. Rather, his goal was to reform the church, the entire church. Okay, That is his vision. The second great tract is called Freedom of a Christian, or it's sometimes called On Christian Liberty. And Freedom of a Christian is a very subtle uh, theological argument that a person who believes in the gospel, who has faith in the gospel, is not subject to law, okay? And he, he has this slogan at the beginning of Freedom of a Christian where he says a Christian man is a free lord of all and at the same time a perfect servant subject to all, right? So there's this paradox And the paradox, in his view, is resolved by the notion that by putting one's faith in Christ, one is then saved and regenerated, and all of one's actions then become actions of love and service to others. And what he was specifically rejecting was the idea that you had to follow the strictures and rituals of the church, right? Things like, you know, fasting on Lent and performing penances and. Uh, that these things were, uh, were empty, they had nothing to do with salvation, and that a real Christian was not subject to those laws or rules. And finally, the Babylonian captivity of the church. This is arguably the most important of the three great tracts. So in Babylonian captivity of the church, obviously Luther is making a reference to the captivity of the Jews in Babylon in the Old Testament, and he's also making reference to the period of time when the Pope relocated to Avignon in the 1300s, and that was also called a Babylonian captivity of the church, a time when the church came to be controlled by the temporal powers of wealth and politics and politicking. So in this pamphlet, Luther argues that the church has been taken over by a covenant of works, meaning a false, the false idea that good actions, good works earn salvation, right? And so the, po- the, the, the Pope is, in his view, the Antichrist, right? So this is where he argues that the Pope is the Antichrist who, is, who has taken control of the church in service of Satan, Right, in order to corrupt and mislead Christians, and he illustrates this argument by examining the seven sacraments. Right, and he he examines each of the seven sacraments, and with each one he questions: Is this a real sacrament that Christians should actually be engaged in? Uh, and his criterion is the Bible. Right, if it is if it is instituted in Scripture then it is a real, valid sacrament. If not, it is a false, a false work that has been imposed onto the church by the deceptions and manipulations of Satan and the Antichrist. Okay, so this might sound a little weird and crazy, but from the point of view of that time, it made some sense. Uh, The Antichrist is not simply a bad person or a villain. The Antichrist in christian apocalypticism is a false christ right Uh, uh, it is a false prophet who stands in as christ and this applied to the pope in luther's view because luther was offering salvation that he could not really provide he was making a false promise of salvation in return for good works like penance and indulgences that he did not really have the power to deliver on. And so he was the Antichrist because he was a false Christ. And, uh, and, and, and Satan, is not again, is not merely an adversary, but a deceiver who works through false prophets. So from Luther's point of view, this made sense. And from the point of view of many of his followers and disciples, this was persuasive. Uh, he goes through the sacraments in Babylonian captivity of the church, and he finds that out of the seven... Only two have scriptural warrant, and in his view are real valid sacraments. And those two, you might know, are baptism and the Eucharist. Right. So baptism, Jesus says in the in the Gospels, you know, go forth and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus himself is baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, so baptism, in his view, is valid, and it represents the uh, sort of washing away uh of of sinfulness and the cloaking or covering over of of a person's original sin by the righteousness of Christ. The Eucharist is of course, instituted in uh, the Last Supper, according to the Gospels. And so Luther argues that it too is a valid, uh, sacrament but all of the stuff the penitential cycle that leads up to the uh, Eucharist is all false impositions okay so clearly this is this is a broad attack on almost the entire structure of late medieval christian practice coupled with a plan of what to do about it Okay, so not surprisingly when these three tracts are circulated and Luther's opponents bring them to Rome, the Pope issues a bull of condemnation, ordering all clerics to burn Luther's books. Okay, which happened in late 1520. There was a, there was a wave of burnings of Luther's writings. Now, This escalation, of course, uh, also backfired, right? We see a series of escalations that repeatedly backfire. And this one backfires in the sense that it forces monks, friars, priests, bishops all over Germany who are aware of Luther's books and are considering his arguments. It forces them to take a side, right? And many of them ultimately take Luther's side. They decide not to carry out this order to destroy Luther's writings. So we see the beginning of a fissure in the church in Germany, which will eventually lead to schism. In 1521, uh, the, the Pope orders the arrest and trial of Luther as an unrepentant heretic, but the emperor, who still has a great deal of power and is in a kind of uh, you know, power, um, continuing power contest with the pope, the emperor instead calls together a diet, or a sort of council or parliament of the leading nobles and local rulers in the empire, which was done from time to time. So he calls a diet at worms. This is where this sort of phrase that looks like diet of worms comes from. He calls together a Diet in Worms in 1521 which will question Luther and try to persuade him to recant the teachings that he had put forward that the papacy had condemned as heresy. So they're sort of giving Luther one last chance to uh, to shape up. But naturally by this time he has really dug in his heels. He is absolutely sure that he is right. He has many supporters, and instead he refuses to recant a single word. He says, you know, I I can do nothing else but stand by everything I've written. This, in effect, means that he is now a condemned, unrepentant heretic, and any civil or church authority in the empire has full authority to arrest him and try him themselves or to hand him over to a holy office of the Inquisition. Right. So he's, he's, he's now an outlaw, basically. And once he says this, he, he's in danger at any moment. Well, before he leaves Worms, uh, some emissaries of Frederick of Saxony conveniently arrest Luther. And, and again, ar- I'm putting arrest in scare quotes. They arrest him, uh, take him into custody, and take him back to Saxony where he is then uh, hidden in Wartburg Castle, one of the castles uh, owned by, by Philip of Saxony. They put him up in Wartburg Castle where he hi- he grows a beard and hides under the identity of Squire George. And he goes about writing and particularly translating the Bible. So he starts translating first the New Testament into German. Right, So he's again, he's following in the footsteps of these earlier reformers who advocate that scripture should be accessible to any person in their own language so they can take the word of God directly. So he starts translating the Bible into German and he believes, apparently, reportedly, he believes at this point that he is engaged in a direct struggle with Satan for control of the church. Uh, And if you go to Wartburg Castle still today, you'll see in Luther's study a large ink stain on the wall. And reportedly, the traditional explanation is that while Luther was working on his translation, the devil came in, picked up the inkwell, and threw it against the wall to try to stop what Luther was doing. And you know, it's open to question whether luther himself actually originated this story but it it does seem to reflect luther's basic mentality by by this time that he was in a spiritual struggle against satan and his goal was to redeem and save the church from satan by reforming it okay in 1522 Luther's ideas have spread and gained enough support and popularity that Luther is able to come out of hiding. He returns to Wittenberg as a hero and he starts a, a reform, which begins, for one thing, with dissolving the priory, right? So he he, he, he has argued for some time now that monastic life, which is a, a penitential life, is false and, is based on a lie, a lie that living austerely depriving yourself and doing good acts can somehow redeem you from sin and and earn you salvation. And he believes this is a lie. Uh, No person is any more holy than another. The only thing that marks out a saved person is that they have faith, a feeling of confidence and belief that they are saved by Christ. So he dissolves the priory. And this begins a wave of dissolutions of monasteries, priories, convents all around Saxony. Uh, in 1525, he married Katharina von Bora, who had been a nun and had left her convent when it was dissolved. So, uh, so obviously Luther uh, sees no barrier at all to clerical marriage, and he marries Katharina. And a few years later in 1528, he is formally appointed to conduct a visitation of the Church of Saxony. Uh, and visitation means a kind of uh, inspection with the power to make changes. So he, he, he he's taking up a formal role as a reformer. And in his visitation of the Church of Saxony, he naturally uh, ends uh, clerical celibacy, he begins uh, masses and worship and prayer in German rather than Latin. He uh, institutes the, the study and preaching of the Bible by, uh, by clergy rather than uh, medieval uh, penitentials and, and philosophy. Uh, so it's, it's a scriptural reform. And he abolishes five of the seven sacraments, right? So... so uh, marriage is no longer treated as a church sacrament. Uh, there is no last rites. There is no sacrament of ordination, only baptism and the Eucharist. So this is, this is the beginning of what we would call today a Protestant church, right? A church that, uh, that is based on the core idea that salvation is an individual free gift, freely given, Uh, And the church is merely a sort of structure for for regularizing prayer and baptism in the Eucharist, but it does not have the power to forgive sins. Luther's ideas obviously explode all across Europe, and and some people uh, embrace them and others reject them. Uh, Luther engaged in some spirited and... Sometimes acrimonious uh, debates with critics who were not persuaded by his arguments, and probably the most important and most crucial of these public arguments was with Desiderius Erasmus, one of the great uh, Renaissance humanist scholars, a Dutch Renaissance humanist scholar who also was a an advocate of reform. He also advocated, uh, you know, giving up elaborate church ceremonialism uh, putting aside scholastic philosophy and returning to the Bible and to simple personal piety. So in many ways Erasmus's impulses were similar to Luther's but he rejected certain crucial arguments by Luther and one of them was the idea that good works do not uh, earn righteousness or salvation but rather uh, faith alone was the mark not necessarily the cause but it was the mark of being saved was having inward faith. Erasmus rejects this idea because in his view that makes free will impossible. It's It implies that a person is not in control of whether he or she is saved or damned and Erasmus considered that unacceptable. He thought that the whole idea of sin uh, and salvation was based on the notion of free will, that people are choosing how to behave and whether to be righteous or unrighteous. So Luther uh, fires back. uh, Erasmus publishes a pamphlet on the freedom of the will. Luther fires back with his response the bondage of the will. And Luther Uh, In this debate, openly espouses the idea of predestination, right? Uh, That every person's fate is predestined, right? And there's a certain logic behind Luther's argument. Uh, You know, Luther believed that God was sovereign and all powerful, that was a normal uh, church teaching. And if you believe that, then in Luther's view, you cannot then believe that you or I have any power to control what God does, right? And if you say, well, I did good works, therefore God saved me, you're saying that you somehow have the power to change God's actions. You have some kind of power over God. And in Luther's view, that uh, that is impossible, right? You, you, men and women have no power over God. Uh, and what happens to them ultimately is simply due to the sort of inscrutable free choices that God makes over which we have no power so, uh, so he came to this conclusion of predestination. Now it's important to note that Luther did not begin his theological arguments about the church from the premise of predestination rather predestination was an implication that he was forced to, to conclude was true Right. It, it, was, it was an ultimate conclusion he was led to in these debates. But when he got to that point, he did openly say so. Okay. He also engaged in debates with Ulrich Zwingli, and I'll probably talk about him later. So Zwingli was another church reformer who had very similar ideas to Luther and who sprang up right on Luther's heels. So at the same time that Luther was getting pulled into this uh, indulgence controversy in 1517-1518, 15, 15, Zwingli was taking tentative steps to reform the church uh, of, of Zurich in Switzerland. And he had a lot of similar ideas. Uh, he also uh, believed in reforming the church along the lines of scripture. He believed in abolishing five of the seven sacraments. Uh, he uh, believed in ending uh, clerical celibacy. So in, in all sorts of ways he was, he was arguing for a reform on, uh, along very similar lines. But they had a couple of points of disagreement. One was about how churches should look and sound. So Zwingli believed that uh, churches ought to mimic the primitive church. Right, so when you go into a church, say in Zurich in 1524, it should look and sound like the early church described in in the Bible. Now, obviously, it can't look exactly like that because you know, because the early church in biblical times was basically people gathering in somebody's living room. You know, uh, but he believed that Zwingli believed that churches should have no images right this was very important to him because in that in his view that was idolatry and it was an innovation that had been brought into churches after biblical times and so it was a corruption and it was a step towards uh idolatrous worship luther disagreed luther didn't particularly care if churches looked and sounded exactly like the early primitive church. In his view, the point of church was to inspire and encourage piety. And if, and if churches with images or music helped to uh, inspire people to be more pious, if it, helped, if it encouraged faith, then it was good. So they disagreed on that point. Another point where they disagreed was on the Eucharist, right? So both of them believed that the Eucharist was a valid sacrament. It was a a sacred ritual based on the Bible. But uh, And and they both rejected transubstantiation. They both saw that as a spurious doctrine made up in the Middle Ages that could not possibly be true and that had no basis in Scripture. However, uh, Zwingli Went to sort of the opposite extreme. He said, Well, the, uh, the Eucharist is just a symbol. He had what was called, what we call a, a symbolic memorialist interpretation of the Eucharist, uh, that it was simply uh, something that Christians should do to commemorate Christ and to encourage uh, devotion and, and faith. Luther. Luther strongly disagreed. Uh, in Luther's view, the the Eucharist somehow still was actually the body of Christ, or or by by eating the Eucharist, one must actually somehow be eating Christ. And he argued for the real presence, meaning that in some way uh, the, the Jesus was spiritually present in the bread when it had been consecrated. And, uh, and and scholars have called this view consubstantiation, right? Instead of transubstantiation, the, the substance changes, Luther advocated consubstantiation. There was a kind of joining together of the bread with the, the spirit or spiritual presence of Christ. So they had these disagreements which caused problems. It made it hard to create a united front or organize a sort of unified, reformed church in Germany and Switzerland, right? Because their leaders uh, strongly disagreed on these important points of doctrine. And and it was an important point of doctrine, uh, you know, the, the, the Eucharist, because, because they'd thrown out all these other sacraments and they'd thrown out uh, all these common church practices. You only had a sort of bare bones left, so you had to really have a strong reason why baptism and the Eucharist were still important. Uh, so their students, Zwingli's and Luther's students, organize a colloquy or or gathering of reforming preachers at Marburg in 1529, and uh, Luther and Zwingli eventually hold a debate, and they they sort of tacitly agree to leave the question of images aside. That was sort of a touchy subject that neither of them thought was really important enough to fight about. But they do have to debate the Eucharist. What is the Eucharist? Is it really the body of Christ or not? And Zwingli, of course, was putting forward his argument that this was simply a symbol. Uh, it was uh, it was a metaphor for the body of Christ. And Luther, as was his tendency, became more and more agitated. Right? Luther was very passionate he was very single-minded about his teachings, and he absolutely furiously rejected what Zwingli was saying. He kept pointing to the the fact that Scripture, the Gospels, say it is the body of Christ. And finally, at one point in the debate, he uh, tore the tablecloth off of his debating lectern and pointed to the table, and he had written there in chalk the, the, the verse, for it is my body, right, and that—that that is the, in Luther's view, the crucial line where Christ Himself in Scripture says, "This eat of this bread, for it is my body." Uh, and this was his way of sort of shaming Zwingli. Now, uh, th- this was, uh, you know, a powerful moment, but again, it—it—it it, it did not resolve this dispute, right, and followers of Zwingli centered in Switzerland, continued to adhere to his view while Luther's followers uh, adhere to, to Luther's teaching in Germany, particularly in Saxony. So the idea of a united Protestant church or a united German church that could separate from Rome and operate as a kind of German national or imperial church was dashed, right? luther floated this idea you know he in letter to the christian nobility that seemed to be more or less the the goal he was aiming for was uh to set up a reformed church in germany that could then lead the way to reform the entire church but it was never luther's ultimate goal right luther's ultimate goal was a reformed church that practiced practiced only true sacraments and that preached only true doctrine right The absolute truth of doctrine, according to his reading of scripture, was his absolute bedrock principle. When push comes to shove, Luther didn't really care about politics or about Germany. It was about the truth of doctrine. Okay, so the year after the Marburg debate, Luther drafts a confession. Right, a sort of, uh, you might say, a, a, a creed stating what he considered to be true Christian teachings. Uh, and this was published as the Augsburg Confession in 1530. Uh, the Augsburg Confession left out any specific reference to the nature of the Eucharist and whether there was the real presence of Christ or not. Uh, so, so he sort of left out these unresolved points but... Uh, So the Augsburg Confession served as a kind of uh, one-size-fits-all Protestant statement of faith for these new emerging Protestant churches, but it left open certain key points of disagreement that would keep those churches separate. In the 1530s, he also set about composing prayers and hymns. Remember, Luther was a musician, uh, he wrote some pretty good songs, and uh, the most famous of them is uh, "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God," which is still frequently uh, sung in, in Protestant churches. So, so you can see he had he he had this talent uh, not only as a theologian, a writer, a preacher, but as a musician. And as he grew older, you know, by this time, as he goes into his fifties, that was pretty old for this time. Uh, he started to withdraw from public debates and from a public position as a church leader and he retired back to his hometown of Eisleben where he would eventually die in 1546. Okay, so before I talk about the last years of his life and his last writings, uh, let's just pull back for a minute and review a little bit the, the kind of thrust of Luther's theology. So Luther is a writer and a preacher who responded to crucial problems as they came up and who came up with a series of arguments, sometimes changing and evolving arguments, to attack those problems. So Luther's method was sola scriptura, scripture alone. In his view, only the bible could dictate the true teachings and correct practices of the faith right the no institutions had any such authority now we can say historically the bible was written by human beings and it was compiled and canonized by church institutions and that is historically true but <laughs> that was not luther was not concerned about that luther was in part, he was a Renaissance humanist. And you might remember from my, uh, from my lecture about learning in the Middle Ages, uh, the Renaissance humanists, much of their quest was to trace the earliest written sources they could find of ideas, of facts, and to cut away the sort of uh, incorrect accretions that had been added in over the years. And so Luther in this sense, was a Renaissance humanist, and he was very much influenced by the great humanists like Erasmus. And in his view, if you wanted to know what Christianity was and what the church was, you had to look to the earliest documentary source you could get, and that was the Bible. So, sola scriptura. And it was on that basis, of course, that he abolished most of the sacraments. He preached the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, Right? And this is the key point that broke the penitential cycle. Okay, so to Luther, good works are superfluous, right? And acts, even acts of piety or sacrifice are superfluous. They do not earn you salvation. What does earn you salvation? Well, first and foremost, it is Christ's sacrifice. Christ suffered and died on behalf. Of humankind, and that sacrifice was sufficient to redeem all the sins of humankind. Okay, so in this sense, Luther is, you might say, more optimistic, right? He he believes that Christ's sacrifice alone is enough to redeem you, no matter what you've done or how bad you are. Okay, uh, the penance, good works, sacrifices by human beings are all uh, unnecessary. He preached the priesthood of all believers. Okay, any person who has faith in Christ is uh, is equally holy. Right, there is no special spiritual elite. Okay, not the clergy, not the monasteries or convents, uh, not the Pope. There is no special spiritual elite. All all Christian believers are on the same spiritual level. Okay, and all. Callings and professions are all equally holy as well, right? Anyone who practices a profession or an occupation as a result of a personal calling—that is—that is then a holy work that they do out of love for others, right? This was his kind of idealized way of looking at people. That you know, if you're if you're a carpenter or you're a millwright or you're a copper miner and you're doing it uh, for good motives, you're doing you're doing your work out of love of humankind and love of God and love of Christ. And that is equally holy. And so the clergy, ministers like himself, are not any higher spiritually than anybody else. Okay, and I should, I should say here, it's important to clarify what we mean by faith. Okay, so, so the last important point that we need to talk about in Luther's theology is justification by faith. Okay, now I think that this phrase justification by faith, you've probably all heard it, is a little bit of a mistranslation. It really should be more like justification with faith. Okay, justification means being saved, right? Having your sins forgiven, uh, having your slate wiped clean, being saved and given eternal life. Faith, uh, justification goes hand in hand with faith. It's like two wheels on an axle turning together, right? If you are justified, you have faith. If you have faith, you are justified. It's not that one causes the other, right? It's a mistake to think that justification by faith means if you have enough faith, then you get saved. Because then that's just making faith into a work, right? It's making faith into something you have to do and if you do it, you have earned salvation. And that's exactly what Luther was trying to debunk. So, rather, justification and faith go together. Uh, y- you are justified and you have faith if God, in his inscrutable mercy, chooses to give you salvation. Okay. And what does Luther mean by faith? Faith doesn't mean, uh, you know, uh, giving your assent to a creed. Right? faith doesn't mean uh, affirming that certain facts are true Right, it was not in question in Luther's time whether there was a God or whether the Bible was true or whether Christ had risen from the dead all of that was just absolutely taken for granted so the question was not do you believe these teachings or not faith meant having confidence putting your reliance on someone or something and so it, it meant having confidence that you were saved by Christ, right? It's it's directly linked to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. If you earnestly believe that Christ died on your behalf and so you are saved, then you are delivered from constant feelings of fear and guilt, right? So so Luther is more or less talking about what happened to him when he embraced Paul's the teachings in Paul's epistles, right? I was relieved from this constant fear and guilt because I believed that Christ had died on my behalf and that was enough to save me. Okay, the freedom of a Christian that Luther is talking about in his in his pamphlet is freedom from having to do works, right? It's the ability to rely on God's free grace and being freed from having to do good works. Okay. And as he said, again, in, in that pamphlet, a Christian man is the most free lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. Right? So so Luther is saying, if you have this faith and you are saved, then you will be, you naturally, automatically will be dutiful and you will act out of love to others. Okay, um, And he he cites in in the pamphlet, he cites this line from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all. Okay. Now, with all of this being said, Luther was not a systematic theologian. And this is something that recent historians have pointed out. Luther never sat down and wrote a kind of comprehensive, all-encompassing treatise or explanation of Christianity. Right. He was not a systematic theologian, he made ad hoc responses to problems as they arose. Right, And he, he, he was, much like St. Paul, he was very urgent and passionate in attacking what he saw as threats to the church and true teachings. And he believed that he was engaged in a struggle with Satan. Okay, and this is uh, this this argument about Luther has been put forward, particularly in a book by a recent book by Heiko Obermann called "A Luther: Man Between God and the Devil." Right, and that book is a little controversial because there are some Lutheran clergy who who like to think that Luther was a systematic theologian like Calvin or uh, or Zwingli, and that he. And that if any theological question there might be can somehow be answered by Luther's teachings, but historians uh, today do not do not see it that way. Now, also recent scholars have sort of, uh, you might say, gone around and looked behind the kind of iconic towering image of Luther as the founder of the Reformation, uh, which often is is put forward and celebrated by Protestant clerics, right, who see Luther as, as their forebear and their teacher. Uh, Luther was, he was very complicated, he was, you know, he was, a, as I said, he was stubborn, he was ir- uh, irascible, uh, often angry, and you can see a lot of passion in his writings, you can see a lot of humor, he could make people laugh, and uh, and, and there was a good deal of vulgarity, at least what we would today see as vulgarity in Luther's utterances and writings. And, uh, you, you can sometimes see this, there, there's been uh, a book published recently, I don't remember the title, uh, off the top of my head, but, uh, a whole book about the, the frequency with which Luther referred to, uh, <laughs> defecation. Uh, you know, he, he had a, scatological sense of humor which was not too unusual for germany in the early modern era that that's a common part of of german humor at that time but luther seems to have been particularly fascinated with uh with excrement and the process of pooping and (laughs) and this is you know this is not insignificant this is an important theme in, in in his writings among others Uh, I talked about the point where Luther was meditating on Paul's letter to the Romans and he had this kind of epiphany where he believed he had come to understand what Paul was saying about free grace. This epiphany has traditionally been called the Tower Revelation because he said he had it when he was in the tower. And the tower, in this case, meant the corner tower of a castle where the latrines are located. So he was basically saying, I was, I was in the latrines when I had this sort of revelation. And there was a common belief at that time that latrines and cesspools were the sort of playground of the devil, that this is where the devil appeared and uh, tried to manipulate people. So he had this revelation while he was sort of struggling with the devil in this latrine tower. And he said, quote, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So so he's setting up very early on in his accounts about his life. He sets up this idea that he was basically on the toilet and that he was struggling with the devil and that he was able to overcome uh, the forces of the devil and enter instead into paradise. Uh, Up into paradise. He later said uh, that he had conversations where he would taunt and argue with the devil. And one of his taunts that he shouted at the devil was, I am cleansing my bowels and worshiping God Almighty. You deserve what descends, and God what ascends. Okay. So he's he's positing this sort of separation. What is unclean coming out of his bowels will go to the devil, whereas his soul will ascend up to God, right? And he actually, in in some of his writings, he actually used the word shit, you know, "shaisa," or shit in English, which at that time was not exactly a curse word. It was sort of a vulgar word, but it wasn't a curse word. And this word shit, in its derivation, it comes from the same root as schism. uh, And there are other, let's see, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but there are various words meaning separation, splitting apart that are related to the word shit. Uh, and that's basically what shit originally meant, was separating out and casting out what is unholy, what is profane, right? And, uh, and so you see this then echoed in the way that Luther is talking about cleansing his bowels, separating out what is unholy and goes to Satan from the, the, the holy and the spiritual that belongs to God. Uh, he also said that he chased Satan away with a fart in one of his uh, discourses about his life. Uh, he apparently wrote in one in a letter. He wrote, "Dear Devil, I have shat in my pants and breeches. Hang them on your neck and wipe your mouth with them." Okay. So again, he's 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 casting what is what is what disgusts him, what is unholy, and uh, throwing it at the devil he began also then applying this sort of scatological language to his theological opponents, to the forces in the church that were resisting his reforms. Uh, And in 1545, he wrote a pamphlet attacking the Pope called Against the Papacy in Rome, Founded by the Devil. And he argued that indulgences were, quote, an utter shitting, and he called the Pope the dearest little ass Pope. So, so this, is, uh, this is all caught up in his belief that he was struggling with Satan, right? And that uh, the, the shit, uh, excrement, flatulence, everything that is disgusting and unholy uh, belongs to the devil and belongs to the evil satanic forces in the church that must be cast out. And finally, uh, when he was aging, he, he, he said... Uh, about himself, he said, quote, "I am ripe shit, so is the world a great wide asshole. Eventually we will part." So now again, he's seeing himself as kind of unholy, profane, uh, and ready to be to be cast out. Luther also attacked Jews. He had a very complicated relationship uh, with Jews, which got drawn into this uh, this Reformation struggle. So Luther he was again, he was a Renaissance humanist and as such, he w- studied Hebrew. He believed that he ought to be able to read scriptures in their true original language. He studied Hebrew. Uh, he studied uh, humanist scholars who had learned Hebrew from Jewish scholars such as uh, Reuchlin and uh, Johannes Res Reuchlin, He was a Hebrew expert and his nephew was Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, Luther's star student. In uh, 1523, Luther published a pamphlet on the fact that Jesus was born a Jew, and he argued for tolerance and uh, forbearance towards Jews. Uh, he argued that uh, Jews could never be converted to Christianity unless they were shown in ex- examples of Christian uh, piety and love and charity. Uh, and he condemned uh, attacks and slanders against Jews. However, his attitude started to change, especially after 1525. So 1525 apparently was a crucial turning point year. In that year, a large movement of peasants in Germany uh, who had embraced Luther's teachings demanded their freedom. And in doing so, they attacked... Uh, churches and shrines, and they attacked noble houses and the symbols of the nobility, and they called for a sort of free and equal, equal society, and the abolition of class and the church. And in their view, this seemed to follow logically from Luther's arguments about Christian freedom. But Luther was horrified by this. He believed that this, that these, uh, you know, mobs of, uh, hordes of murdering peasants is how he called them, that they were perverting his teachings and that they were showing instead of sort of love and forbearance and dutiful servitude to others instead they were showing uh anger and hatred uh and and were fomenting anarchy so luther uh, responded with horror and condemned this uh, peasant uprising and instead became more and more embedded in uh these sort of uh, conservative political forces in germany and he became more gradually, you might say, more paranoid and hostile in his teachings uh, about about the peasants, about the papacy, and about Jews. So to go back to Jews, uh, he after 1525, he published a series of pamphlets attacking Jews. Uh, he heard rumors that there were certain Jews uh, trying to convert Christians and teaching them to uh, reject Christ and embrace judaism which was probably a false rumor but luther gave credence to these false rumors and he uh, published uh, some very hateful screeds against jews culminating in one called uh, on the jews and their lies uh, in which he said quote my advice is first that their synagogues be burned down and that all who are able toss sulfur and pitch it would be good if someone could also throw in some hellfire. Second, that all their books, their prayer books, their Talmudic writings, and also the entire Bible be taken from them, not leaving them one leaf, and that these be preserved for those who may be converted. So he, he advocated you know, attacks on Jews, destruction of synagogues, uh, forced conversion, and, and even enslavement uh, of, of Jews. Uh, and in in his later life, he he also called Jews uh, excrement. Uh, you know, he again presented them as this sort of insidious, impure corruption within Christendom. And in all of these ways, these these different views, uh, and this sort of paranoia that he was developing in his later life, f- fed into his sort of final his final mission, which was apocalyptic so he began to believe that the that the end times were approaching that his reformation of the church in germany was uh, a step towards the coming uh, apocalypse and that his duty rather than reforming the church as a whole his duty instead was to ensure the purity of this true church as it fought against the evil forces uh the Catholic Church, which was Gog and Magog, uh, the rebelling peasants, and the Jews, and the more radical Protestants, whom he believed were false prophets. Right. So, so his his sort of vision changes from trying to uh, seize control of the church from Satan in order to reform it to instead separating out a a smaller true church to uh, hunker down and battle against the evil forces that were coming. Okay, so this more or less seems to be uh, the way Luther saw things in the last years of his life before he died in 1646. So finally, what are the consequences of Luther's reforms? Well, as I said, he intended to reform the whole church. Uh, what ended up happening was he gave rise to a series of of Protestant churches, each of which reformed the church sacraments, reformed the liturgy, translated the Bible and the liturgy into uh, vernacular languages and reformed church governance, Right, rejected papal authority and set up various sort of governing structures, either by congregations, by gatherings of elders, by ministers or by bishops, uh, and he created a new uh, aesthetic for at least for the Lutheran Church, one that minimized ceremony, was sparing in images and that focused on pietistic hymns like the ones that Luther himself had written. okay. His teachings, of course, as I said, led to the Peasants' War of 1525, which Luther himself rejected and which was brutally uh, suppressed. It led to a lasting schism in the church and a fragmented reformation with many different Protestant churches splitting off in their own directions. And also it ultimately led to a redounding uh, reform movement within the Catholic church in response to this Protestant challenge. And I'll, I'll probably talk later about how the Catholic church uh, responded and followed its own uh, path of, of reform. In the, in the wake of Luther. So, thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, if there's any way you can offer any support, even just uh, a dollar or two, please look at my Patreon page, also under Historian Historiansplaining. Tell uh, your friends, neighbors, colleagues uh, about the podcasts if you like them. And uh, if you have questions or topics you want me to address, please email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. Thank you.